you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 82 of Reclaiming the Faith. I'm your host, Phil Baker, and today, at the request of one of my Patreon subscribers, I'm going to be doing an interview with Phil Patillo on church discipline. It's going to be a three-part series with this being part one of that series on church discipline. Before we get into it, I want to draw your attention to my new album called Babylon, which you can find on CD Baby, Amazon, Spotify, pretty much anywhere uh, you find streaming music, you can find it there. So please go check that out. And if it's a blessing to you, please leave a rating and review there. Also, if this episode is a blessing to you, please go to the Apple Podcasts uh, site or uh, iTunes and leave a rating and review there on my channel, Reclaiming the Faith. That'd be a big blessing to me. You can find everything that I do, my book, my blog, my Patreon, my music, all of that on my website, philsbaker.com. Well, I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Falls Fourth Watch Radio Network, and I'm also blessed to be a, a regular guest on BDK's Omega Frequency YouTube channel, where we do a monthly live Q&A show called Ready With An Answer that we'd love for you to join us on. Uh, this is once a month. So if you have any questions about what I talk about on Reclaiming the Faith or anything on the Fourth Watch or anything that BDK talks about on Omega Frequency, you can hit us up live there uh, on Ready With An Answer. Also, if you just have a question about ethical matters or scriptural matters, I would love to take your questions there. Well, Uh, The early Christian quotes that I use on this channel can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can buy for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. Well, again, I'm just so pumped to get into this interview with uh, Phil Patillo. He was a guest on Reclaiming the Faith several episodes previous. Uh, He did an interview about being a godly husband that has been a blessing to a lot of people. Also, I'll have a link to his sermons, which you can find online uh, in the show notes. So please go check those out. And they've been a blessing to me. I know they'll be a blessing to you as well. So without any further ado, let's get into part one of my interview with Phil Patillo about church discipline. All right, Phil Patillo, thank you so much for coming back on Reclaiming the Faith. Um, your episode on Godly Husbands got a lot of great feedback, and so I know people are going to really be blessed by our episode today on church discipline. Well, thanks, Phil, and praise God for that. Yeah, amen, amen. Well, um, I guess just to kick this off, I, I, I want to ask you, um, why is it so important that we both understand and implement church discipline correctly? Cool, man. And uh, Phil, if you don't mind to kick off your kickoff, <laughs> uh, there were there were a couple of things I'd like uh, just because folks um, haven't heard, uh, uh, been in with us with the Bible study. I just wanted to do a couple of introductory things. Absolutely. 
one of them is I'm I'm going in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 17. We're on Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, he's gone to Thessalonica, had initial success in Thessalonica, and then we're told that because of the jealousy of some of the Jews in the synagogue, um, they essentially chased Paul out of uh, town. Mm-hmm. And we read in um, verse 10 that the brothers took Paul and Silas and uh, sent them to Berea. And then we have this interesting verse in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Now these, that is the Jews in Berea, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Uh, I just wanted to encourage anyone that accesses uh, this study to uh, be a Berean. Uh, It's been quite a while since I had an original thought. (laughs) And so people need to, to check out uh, what conclusions I have reached? We'll we'll try to give uh, references for everything. Yeah. But there's something about the Bereans. I know it's not good to speculate, but I do find it interesting that uh, we have two letters in our hands to the Corinthians, to the, to the the believers at Thessalonica, believers at Galatians got a letter, the Ephesians got a letter. No letter to the Bereans. Mm. And I just wonder if part of that couldn't be because there wasn't a lot to correct in that church, that they were continually in Scripture, as Luke tells us, and handling a lot of their own problems. And that sounds a lot like the church at Antioch that seemed to be a pretty healthy church. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the, The second sort of introductory thing that I think it's sort of important, particularly on this topic of church discipline, is uh, we're going to do a Bible study. Uh, Our intent is to try to recover how the first century Christians handled church discipline. Mm. Uh, Our intent is not to give legal advice. (laughs) Right. We you know, we live in a world yeah. when um, it's easy for church issues to spill outside of the church. Mm. Sometimes it's easy even within the church for the uh, legal rights of people to be abused. Mm. And I just want to remind everyone uh, in Romans chapter 13, Paul says, let every person in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And to my knowledge, there are very few exceptions to that that we find in the New Testament. I've never had to do a legal disclaimer before, but I think this is probably a good episode to do one. (laughs) Um, Yes, and having said that, um, the final, the final thing I'd say by way of introduction is, uh, 
a lot of this material is from some very good authors, and I'll mm -hmm. I'll try to cite them. But if I miss something, uh, hope everybody will just have patience with that. Um, now let's now I've gotten that out of the way. Let's go ahead and and your your question is a good place to start, Phil. Okay. Uh, I think I think one thing we have to remember is that. Um, not only are we told to practice church discipline, but we are authorized to practice church discipline. A central set of verses for our study tonight is going to be from Matthew chapter 18, and it'll be verses 15 through 17. But in that same context, we have three verses following those, which appear to be a continuation of Jesus's discussion on church discipline. Mm. And he says in verses 18 through 20, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. It looks like this pronouncement by Christ Jesus is a special case of his pronouncement in Caesarea Philippi when he gives the keys to the kingdom of heaven to Peter in uh, Matthew chapter 16, the wording is almost identical. Mm. And particularly the tense of the verbs in in verse 18 are the same. Both cases, we have a future perfect tense where Jesus is saying, whatever you bind on earth, shall have been bound in heaven. In other words, what I detect from this is some guaranteed heavenly cooperation with the church as they do their binding and their loosing, that it is um, a cooperation such that we are not on our own. We need at every step of church discipline to recognize our partnership with the Lord. But by the same token, we can take comfort in the fact that we are being given guidance so that we can have confidence that uh, whatever we bind is, has already been bound in heaven, and whatever we loose has already been loosened in heaven. I really like the way you're saying that. What I'm getting from that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is um, we're not the initiators, that God is the initiator in that, and we're just trying to carry out his decrees and his orders. Oh, that's fantastic insight, Phil. Uh, I mean, if we go back to the mother passage, uh, it was Jesus who started the conversation by asking the disciples, uh, who do people say that I am? 
And that led to this, this authority that he has given the church. And yes, we, it's a serious topic, and we just need to be mindful that um, we have serious support from the Lord. Having said that, let me try to address this, this uh, initiating question that you had. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul tells the people in Thessalonica, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak, be patient with everyone. When we speak of discipline, we're using an English word that comes from a, a Latin word, discipulus, which means pupil. Uh, it's also the same word from which we get the English word disciple, although from a slightly different path. And when we think of a pupil, the learning process for a pupil can sometimes be joyful. The first time one understands an equation in algebra, the first time that one gets uh, a good grade on a theme, that, that can be a real high. Unfortunately, we're not headed in that direction. The discipleship that we're talking about has more to do with correction, particularly correction that has been initiated by some sort of sin. Uh, we still have confidence, though, that the outcome is positive. For example, uh, the author of Hebrews writes, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And I think that's something that we need to keep in front of us all the time, is that the end goal for both the offended and the offender is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, when we look at exactly why we do church discipline, um, and I think this is the heart of uh, where you would like for us to start, I see three things, and, and this, this, these divisions are arbitrary. I have taken the three divisions from um, Gruden's um, Systematic Theology book. The first one is reconciliation. I'm going to turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and just read a couple of verses beginning in verse 18. Paul is talking about our being new creations and then he gives us an explanation for the context of 
why God has done this for us. In verse 18, he says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, in context, this passage has to do with sharing the gospel, that great reconciliation that each of us goes through as they become a believer. But as we continue in the Christian life, our, our reconciled state can our, our communication both with God and with each other can be uh, intermittently broken, interrupted by sin. And so I take it that not only does our remit include sharing the gospel, reconciling people to God, but it also includes this difficult issue of church discipline, reconciling Christians to each other. Yeah, and if I can jump in real quick, it, it seems from, um, if you combine like uh, 2 Corinthians 5 with 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul talks about it's not our job to judge outsiders. God will judge the outsiders. It's our judge to, job to judge the insiders, right? And then he goes oh, into great. into um, this really, really bad stuff that's been going on. Well, he, he has in chapter <laughs> five, right? Between a man and his stepmother. Um, it, it seems like it's so important for us to practice reconciliation with each other and really practice um, church discipline inside the church so that we can be a more effective witness to the world. No, Phil, I think your point is, is well taken. Because yeah, uh, like, we're, we're not supposed to judge them. They are judging us. They're judging Christ oh, by good. us. Oh, good, man. Yes. I'm yes. sorry to interrupt and you. And our behavior, our behavior, I think you're right on, is and we'll we'll discuss this this first Corinthians five incident, but you can see Paul just uh, interrupting since the Corinthians appear to be doing nothing mm. about this situation, this great sin yeah. that's going on in the church. No, good point. We have encouragement about efforts towards reconciliation. James writes in his epistle, I'm reading from uh, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brethren, if any of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's a great goal. The trick is in how we get there. Yeah. We can, we can uh, do this uh, roughly, or as Paul writes the Galatians, I'm reading from Galatians chapter 6, mm. 
Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore, there's our reconciliation, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourselves that you too will not be tempted. So we've got our aim, that is to restore brother in sin. We've got our method, we're to do it in gentleness. And then all the time, we need to uh, keep in our mind that we are to be doing this, pursuing the peaceful fruit of righteousness that the author of Hebrews talked about. Mm. Now, this, this next point, Bill, to me is extremely important. Um, reconciliation is not complete unless it ends with positive restoration of relationships. I'm going to spend a little time here, and in spending a little time here, I'd like to um, take just a small detour and talk about something that uh, I perceive in Scripture, I call it the law of no zero. Uh, and I think if I take us around the path here, when we come back, we'll see how this applies. The point that I'm heading for is the positive restoration. So the law of no zero. Within Scripture, we can find all sorts of instances within our lives, we can find all sorts of instances where we are in a bad position. And I'm going to call that position negative. That is um, something with our environment, with our behavior is seriously wrong. Noah found himself a righteous man in an unrighteous world. Abram and Sarai found themselves not parents when they had a fabulous promise from God about the multitude of their descendants. So at those points, those Bible heroes were in a negative state. And what I want to emphasize to us here is that when God heals, he wants us in a positive state. Now, to go from negative to positive, you have to go through zero. And the point that I see repeated in Scripture is God never stops at zero. Uh, we can look at all sorts of examples, but I have just picked one out. And the example I picked out is a portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is in Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to begin in verse 22. Now, what was our negative state? Our negative state, each one of us, was that at one time, our lives were dominated by the flesh. Our lives were dominated by the old man. The positive point that God wants to bring us to is running our lives in coordination with the new man, 
Christ in us. And what we see in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 4 is Paul giving examples of this. He says in verse 22, lay aside the old self and be renewed in your mind. And then he says in, in verse 24, put on the new self. And then he gives some examples. For example, in verse 25, he says, laying aside falsehood. So here I am. I'm a new Christian, perhaps an old Christian, and I'm lying. And Paul says, that's a negative state, Phil. Stop it. So I stop lying. What am I to do? I could just never speak again. That would be a zero state, but it's not very fruitful. Notice what Paul says in verse 25. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. That is, he replaces something negative with something positive. Again, in the same passage, I'm going down to verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. So again, to, this is a negative state. I'm a thief. And I could correct that simply by having somebody tie me to a chair for the rest of my life. That would be a state of zero. I'm not stealing. Right. But Paul doesn't encourage that. He says, let him who steals, uh, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. With those examples, that's the point that I think we need to remember with regard to reconciliation. That simply correcting a sin is not what's implied in church discipline. What is implied is the restoration of brotherly love, the restoration of communion with other believers, the restoration of one's relationship with the Lord Jesus. So there is our first and big reason for church discipline. The second one goes to the passage that uh, you mentioned in 1 Corinthians. So I'm turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and this second issue has to do with protection. First Corinthians chapter five, we find out right away a problem in the church. We read in verse one, it was actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as did not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Not only is there this giant public sin within the church, but verse two, and you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. Protection, protection of the church, protection from the incident 
is what Paul has in mind here. The church should have been saying, how in the world did this happen to us? And since it happened, why have we let it go on so long? What have we done? And yet Paul says they're being arrogant. This protection of the church is right for today's world also. It is so easy as we bring unbelievers, new believers from the world into the church, not to want to offend their sensibilities and to, um, in a sense, go easy on them um, as they go through some sort of transition period. Going easy is one thing. Permitting sin is another. This passage, um, when you're talking about protection, that word can be used by religious institutions to justify not doing church discipline. Like there's a... Um, yes, it can. And I, I won't mention names, but there's a certain... Um, leader in a major Christian university that's had a long pattern of sexual immorality. And this institution's covered it up year after year. And it finally became public very recently. And that person had to step down, but this institution has known about this and let it go on basically to protect the institution. But in fact, it's doing more harm than good because Christianity becomes, it gets mocked. We get mocked by this. And, you know, it's not protecting the body. Tertullian, um, he, he seems to be writing about uh, some 1 Corinthians 5 stuff and the matter of judging that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 5, right? That Jesus is present with us when we're doing this. He's writing about this in, uh, Tertullian is in an apologetic work to the empire because Christians are being accused of licentiousness by the Romans. Well, just gross licentious, immoral behavior. And Tertullian, if I can read just a really brief one, he says, he's talking about in in their Christian gatherings. And this is to the the emperor, basically. (laughs) He says, in the same place also, exhortations are made, rebukes and sacred censures are administered that is because the work of judging is carried on among us with great seriousness. And you have the most notable example of judgment to come when anyone who is, has sinned so grievously as to, as to require his severance from us in prayer in the congregation and in all sacred matters. So it's just, I mean, he's saying, no, we take discipline very seriously. It's a regular part of what we do basically so that we don't have to you know, cut someone off from the church, but it's a regular part of what we do. I don't know. I don't know why that was coming to my mind, but, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Phil, but this issue of protection, I just see that get abused so much. No, Phil, that's, that's really timely, man. And uh, yeah, we can let so much go with, in this false sense of protecting the church. And, you know, uh, as you've brought out uh, in Tertullian's comments, uh, I think a good measure would be just to read chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians and for a church to ask itself, 
what kind of comments would we get from Paul mm. for the way that we have let this go on? Right. A second, a second area having to do with protection, uh, again, timely with, with respect to the pandemic that we're all uh, experiencing now, has to do with infiltration. Mm. As Paul continues in chapter 5, he gets down to verse 6 and begins to explain to the Corinthians how this germ of sin can become a pandemic. In verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And Paul brings up this practice, I think, that most folks are familiar with, that uh, in the first century, when they would make bread, uh, they would set aside a piece of the uh, sour or the fermented dough for next time. And on the next loaf, they would use that uh, leaven, yeast, to ferment the next loaf of bread. It's an impurity in the loaf, uh, but it affects the behavior of the entire loaf. Mm. And uh, Paul is strong here in his language. Uh, He essentially tells the Corinthians be who you are. Christ has been sacrificed to make us unleavened. Do not let this impurity enter your fellowship. The longer we let a known sin in the church go, the worse this leavening becomes. Because then if we ever do decide to address it, all sorts of questions arise. Bob's been doing this. How come you didn't stop him from doing it? If it's so bad, why did you let it go on for so long until now you're going to embarrass me in front of everyone? Mm. So we need to keep in mind how seriously Paul takes this incident in the church of Corinth. The final thing, I think, Phil, as far as uh, reasons for church discipline um, have to do with honor. That is, uh, everything that we do should glorify God. Nothing we do uh, should bring his name into ill repute. as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, man, I'm, I'm thinking of a passage from Romans chapter 1. Even though they, hear Paul speaking of the Gentiles, knew God, verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Again, we just have to go one more chapter in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, to chapter 6, and we find two brothers 
with an agreement involving fraud, bringing their disagreement into a public court and uh, Paul's correction of them again is strong. I'm reading from chapter six now, first Corinthians verses five and six. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brothers? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. What kind of picture of successful Christianity are we presenting when we allow disputes instead of following the procedure that Christ Jesus has given us to end up in a public courtroom? This it's a bad why, witness. This is why we did the legal disclaimer, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a bad witness. Yeah. And um, I'm going. I'm going to First Peter, mm. chapter two, where Peter reminds us of this, beloved. In verse eleven, I urge you as aliens, aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, this reminds me of the passage you read from Tertullian, mm -hmm. <clears throat> they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. So there we have three things, restoration, protection, and honor. If we do not practice church discipline, there's little hope of restoration. We leave the church unprotected and we do no honor to the name of our savior. I think those are three good reasons that a church should consider beginning to implement church discipline as a regular process. Okay. So now we did the why. Um, were you wanting to get into the how now? Sure, if that's okay. Yep. Let's do it. Okay, so we've talked about the why of church discipline. Now let's talk about the how. And um, as we begin working through the steps of church discipline, I'd like to add a step that does not appear in our main passage, which is going to be Matthew chapter 18. But it is a step that uh, Jay Adams brings out in his handbook of church discipline. And uh, it actually comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I'm turning to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 23 and 24. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go your way. First, 
be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. This initial step of discipline that precedes church discipline is self-discipline. It's actually a fruit of the Spirit, as Paul lists them in Galatians chapter 5. And it has to do with self-control, self-correction. And the example Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount is this man who is in the inner court of the temple offering a sacrifice in a solemn rite who remembers something that uh, he has done that has offended a brother. And Jesus says that's more important. Stop the sacrifice. Go and be reconciled to your brother first. So as we begin our procedure in Matthew chapter 18, we're assuming that um, either there has been no self-control or the self-control hasn't worked or somehow this believer has stumbled. And so I'm... No, that's really good. It was making me think too, when you're talking about the fruit of the spirit with the self-control, also the idea of gentleness or meekness in it. Um, and the idea of patience or forbearance. Um, Cause you know, there's going to be some suffering, uh, whether that's crucifying the, fl- you know, my pride or whatever, going to need a lot of that fruit of the spirit as we're going through here. And it was making me think too of uh, like a pre-step, you know, like a, uh, I don't know what you want to call that, what you call that, but um, the Matthew seven idea of before I'm pulling out the, the spec, I need to, you know, look at myself first. And that goes along with the uh, Galatians six passage as well of keeping an eye to ourselves so that we're not falling into the same sin because maybe we have. And so we need to, and also golden rule stuff, right? <laughs> Treat others the way you want to be you treated. Bet. Yeah. A lot of good stuff in the Sermon on the Mount for oh, church discipline. Oh, this is great, Phil. Yeah. Um, uh, once we're, we're going to see in a moment that, that once we start the disciplining procedure, uh, things get serious quickly. Yeah. So anything I can do uh, to discipline myself mm. is going to save me a lot of grief. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. 
Savior come.